right, so this is a very interesting parable. It's not, certainly not the easiest parable uh, to interpret. I was telling my colleague the other day, I'm going to be preaching on this one, and all he did was laugh, and then walked away. So, uh, but this is a beautiful parable. It's been interpreted in a number of ways. I'm going to be faithful to the interpretation of the church through the ages uh, as we look at this uh, transformative parable. The uh, first thing I want to note, though, is last week we talked about identity crisis, Uh, with a weeping woman who provides a wonderful model for us. She knew her guilt came weeping before Jesus. She knew who Jesus was, so she knew who she was. She knew who Jesus was. She fell down on his feet in worship and reverence, and she gave him lavish gifts of gratitude. So she provides a model for us of knowing who we are, knowing who Christ is, and then responding in great deeds of service. Uh, This parable is going to extend that, uh, but you might have last week said, well, what is lavish deeds of service look like to Christ? Is there any practical ways in which we can love God and love our neighbor? What does specific examples of gratitude look like? So today we're going to be really pressing on the issue of grace and gratitude. Do we understand grace and how does that flow out in specific ways in gratitude? And as you're sensing here in the parable, it's going to be related to a very difficult issue, which is money and possessions. Mammon is just a catch-all phrase for, for possessions for money. So that's the first thing, note, that we're going to be looking at, especially the issue of grace and the issue of gratitude in a specific way regarding possessions. And that's why this is also difficult to to preach on uh, as well to receive as 21st century Americans who have quite a bit. Uh, So let's connect the dots there. With the woman who didn't suffer an identity crisis in Jesus' parable, where we may well suffer an identity crisis, not knowing what era we live in and what should be our appropriate response. Number two, this is addressed to disciples. So it's nice if you can wiggle out of Jesus' parables and say, it's not about me, (laughs) not to me. Unfortunately, we don't have that wiggle room. It's specifically addressing the disciples. So those who have been brought into the kingdom of God, those who are saints, or what we call sons and daughters of God, or sons and daughters of light. So this is to the disciples. However, next week's sermon, we'll piggyback on this one, will be in Luke 16 as well. So what we realize is there's also Pharisees who are listening to Jesus' comments regarding possessions. And that'll be really interesting as we work through the text today and also next week. So people outside of the kingdom are listening, but specifically it's addressed to people uh, within the kingdom. And then number three, if you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice that Luke chapter 15, this parable is coming on the heels of the three beautiful Lucan parables of lostness, right? So we have the one lost sheep of a hundred, we have the one lost coin out of ten, and we have the one lost son out of two. And those parables bring up the issues of possessions and material benefactions. So we have coins, and we have sheep, and we have a banquet, and we have a robe, and we have a signet rim, and we have a fatted calf. So that brings up the question, which is anticipated in Luke chapter 16, which is what then is a wise use of one's possessions, whether it's sheep or coins or signet rings and calves, and feasts. So Jesus will now uh, turn to address this issue, which is a right use of one's possessions. Final point. This parable, to understand it, Jesus' parables sometimes work differently. This is a parable that we call a much more, a how much more parable. So we've already seen this in Luke chapter 11, where we have this friend who will respond to the needs of another friend, but do it begrudgingly, just because he have to, has to, to save face. And then we have how much more God is greater than a friend. 
So he's not like the human plane. And then we have the father who will feed his son, and he's a loving father, but Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God? So on the human scale, friends and fathers do good, but how much more does God? This parable is going to work off of a principle like that, but it's not going to compare these things to God. It's going to compare it to children of this age and children of the kingdom. And you would expect that the how much more would be, oh, good, as children in the kingdom, we're doing so much more. Unfortunately, that's not what Jesus is going to state, but you have to catch the logic of the how much more. Uh, make this more practical, uh, how Jesus' parable, how his logic works. And we do this today. So imagine my son, I'm not saying this is a real-life situation, but perhaps, maybe, uh, he is playing on the computer a very popular game about constructing worlds and houses, going to leave out names. Uh, there's a beautiful house he's building. He's like, Dad and Mom, I want to show you this beautiful house. And he takes us into this house that has been meticulously designed, block upon block, gold and silver and, and beautiful things. And I walk, I'm walking in, there's this beautiful landscaped garden, this beautiful fountain that's flowing through his house. I mean, it's some, it defies some logic and natural resources and things, but that's okay. And he's walking me through, and I'm like, well, that is absolutely beautiful. Now, here, here's the thing. His fake virtual world, everything is perfect. Everything is in its place. Unfortunately, when he asks me to come into his room, I cannot walk. <laughs> because in his room, there is no landscaped anything. It's a complete disaster and mess. So I'm looking around and saying, hmm, if in your virtual world everything is perfect, why in a real world, does everyone see where the logic is going to go? Why would you not make it like that? <laughs> Boy, I wish, how much more should a real world be nicer than a virtual world? Does everyone catch the logic there? So this is the way Jesus' parable is going to work, the how much more. And the way Jesus' parables work, they're prophetic parables, so they have a tendency to convict us, to indict us. That's okay. That's what parables do. So we have to let, let the law be the law, but let's run to the gospel as we hear this uh, as well. All right, so those are the, the points I want us to catch. Now, as far as the outline of this sermon, and to be honest with you, this uh, exposition will not take terribly long, but I do want to spend more time on the application. So just be aware of that as we're working through this. So I'm going to, though, distinguish different sections in the text. When you have a narrative, I call them acts. You know, there's sections of a play, act one, act two, act three. And this will be important for us when it comes to the application. So the first act is in verses 1 through 4. And if you were taking notes there, you can simply uh, write down what I'll call the recognition of the steward. He recognizes something critical. It's recognition. Or if you like A, so we can do alliteration R, we can do A. It's the assessment of the steward. He's going to make an assessment about the current crisis in his life. And his, through his soliloquy, which is his I am, we get a heart, window into his heart. Jesus loves to do this too. In Luke chapter 14, he does this with a rich man in the barns. We get insights into what this individual is thinking. So act one is the recognition of the steward with the current crisis that he faces. He, makes, he sizes up the situation, shores it up, and says we have a real issue that has to be addressed. So that's verses 1 through 4. We'll look at these in a moment, but this is just the general outline. Then verse 5 through 7, we have not the recognition of the steward, but the response of the steward. So if we're going to go with the R's, we have the response of the steward. Or if you want to follow the A's, you have the action of the steward. Where the steward makes a decision in light of the circumstances and in view of the future. 
uh, he makes a decision that's shrewd, it's wise, it uh, has a sense of urgency. Uh, so that will be verses 5 through 7. And then in verse 8 is Act 3. And I call that the reward of the steward. Or if you want to follow the A, the acclaim of the steward. He receives acclaim. Verse 9 will then be essentially the punchline, Jesus' interpretation of the parable. And you can see there the, the how much more logic is going to work in verse 8 and into verse 9. And then verses 10 through 13 will address some issues relative to possessions and our heart as well. Okay, so let's look again, verse 1 through 4. There was a rich man who had a manager. Cultural context in the first century, if you're rich, the typical association in the Palestinian world, the Mediterranean world, is rich equals land. You have land. You're not landless. So this is an individual who presumably had a significant amount of land. Luke loves to address the issue of riches. And he has a manager, which we could also translate as an agent. In the first century, the agent is the master, as it were. He's the ambassador for this manager. Uh, so, excuse me, the, the manager is an ambassador for the rich man. He acts in his place. So whatever the manager does is really the wealthy rich person doing. So the actions of the manager are the actions of the rich man. That's in the first century. He represents the master with his activities. Uh, the charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Uh, that's a significant issue, and of course that has to be addressed. So in verse 2, he's going to call, the rich man's going to call the manager, this agent, and he's going to say to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, you can no longer be manager. And here's the soliloquy, the manager is going to speak within himself, which gives us a window into the insights of his heart. He says, what shall I do? My master is taking the management away from me. And he faces a real urgent crisis because he is not strong enough to dig. Presumably that would be his next line of work. And he's ashamed to beg, which would be the worst line of work for him. So I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. This is a Mediterranean concept called reciprocity. Reciprocity means if you do something good and benevolent to someone else, the expectation is that they will do something good in response to you. It fits in with the honor and shame concept of the first century. So if you do good to another, you could do good to one, someone, that person will do good to you. That's simply the way the first century operated. But notice what is happening here with this individual, the manager or the agent. He knows his present circumstance, but he also has a prospect for the future. In the sake of self-interest, he must make an action, make it, do some duties that not only preserve him at the moment, but are especially long-term objectives that are beneficial to himself. So he has an eye on the present, and he also has an eye uh, on, on the future. We'll come back to that, but Jesus is going to reference how that is important for us as kingdom citizens of heaven. Verse 5, so summoning his, master, uh, his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe the master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil, which, is a, which they would measure in what's called baths, and that would be about three years of wages. So it's a significant amount. Presumably, these debtors were contracted by the rich man to farm his land and to give him the produce. But there is a significant debt uh, that is owed. So after he tells them the hundred measures, he said, take your bill and 
sit down quickly, and the quickly is really significant. There's a sense of real urgency there. And he says, write 50, so cut the bill. A benevolent deed that he knows in the future will serve him well. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat, what they call core, and that's about seven and a half years of wages, a significant amount that is owed as well. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So quite a shrewd, urgent, perhaps wise action representing the manager. So the response of the steward is shrewd, it's wise, it's, it carries with it a sense of deep urgency to preserve his life now, but especially into the future. Verse 8, now we have the response of the master. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then, without even telling us that this is Jesus' words, it says, for the sons of this world are how much more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails you, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What in the world (laughs) is he talking about? So, Jesus' parables are what we call parables of the kingdom. They're giving us a new insight and view into what God is doing in this world. But Jesus' compare, contrast, how much more operates in this way. If a son of a worldly kingdom sizes up a situation rightly, and in a sense of urgency and shrewdness, with a view to the future, makes an action that's wise, how much more should a child, should a son or daughter of the kingdom, in light of the present circumstance and crisis, act in a way that's fitting with the kingdom values in which they're placed? So we have the kingdom of men, and in the kingdom of men, you would expect, if you know the circumstance, a dire crisis situation, you size it up, and you're looking for long-term dividends of reward, you make appropriate actions. And that's the way this world works. You look out for self-interest, self-focus, but with an eye on your future. This is how people handle their possessions. But that is children of Satan's kingdom. How much more if they in that kingdom know how to size up a situation and respond accordingly to their possessions, should children of the kingdom of God size up the circumstance and respond in possessions in a way that serves the interests of God and his kingdom. Right, so Jesus is saying the sons of this age are better at sizing up the world in which they live and responding appropriately than the sons and daughters of the kingdom. So that's the way the how much more parable works. It works to convict us and to say, sons of this kingdom, the world, do really well with their use of possessions They size up situations. They act accordingly with long-term dividends. But Jesus' kingdom is, you're a child of the kingdom with different set of values. So how do you handle possessions in a sense that is, here's the urgency of the kingdom, I must respond appropriately with my use of possessions. If they do it, how much more should they do it? So that's essentially the logic uh, that is occurring here in this text. Now, we're going to come to the application in a few moments, but I want to first understand that that's the logic of the parable. 
And it serves to convict us and to expose us that, hey, if, you know, in this worldly kingdom, people do right, they do what fits in their worldview with possessions. They know the circumstance. And in their worldview, of course, there's no God, there's no future, there's no heaven, but they're still acting with a view to the future and they size up the present circumstance well. Well, what in the world is wrong with kingdom citizens? <laughs> they don't understand the present circumstance there and which is, this is the kingdom of God which calls them to make an urgent, wise use of their possessions with an eye to the future and the eternal dividends. Again, we'll come back to the application there. Uh, verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And essentially Jesus is saying your present responses are solidifying, they're ratifying who you are, whether you're faithful and unfaithful. So the steward has recognized their situation and made actions, and Jesus is saying, look at the actions now presently that you're involved in with your use of possessions. But then Jesus will go in verse 13, and as he so skillfully does, tells us there's a heart issue there with recognition. And the hard issue is that we can't have two masters. We are either going to hate the one or love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other because we can't serve God and money. So Jesus already mentioned unrighteous mammon. He's well aware of the dangers of possessions and guarding us from committing idolatry when it comes to our use of uh, possessions. We'll talk about that more next week with a... Uh, use of possessions when it comes to those who are rich and who are poor. But for now, I want to address some issues of application for us with this parable. Number one is the issue of the recognition of the steward. The steward recognizes the current crisis, their predicament, and their situation. And they act appropriately, shrewdly, responsibly. Then Jesus says, how much more should citizens of the kingdom Size up the situation they're in and respond with urgency. Well, that asks the natural question, what is the circumstance situation that we're involved with? If it's not the kingdom of men, what a kingdom are we in? We're in, of course, the kingdom of heaven. So how do we as Christians work on understanding that we are first recognizing here's the current situation we're in, which is kingdom living? So how do we do that? If the worldly agent knows the kingdom he lives in, how do we as Christians understand our recognition of what kingdom we're living in? And I'll offer a brief comment. First is, for Jesus, the kingdom of God is shorthand for forgiveness of sins, is shorthand for repentance and a life of forgiveness. So kingdom of God is the gospel. We live in light of the gospel. So for Luke, he'll use kingdom of God Repentance and forgiveness of sins, gospel, kingdom, all simultaneously, interchangeably as terms. So how, as citizens of God's kingdom, can we recognize that we are actually in this kingdom? So we're, we're, we're facing an identity crisis. What kingdom are we in? Are we in the kingdom of men, which uses possessions in one way, or are we in the kingdom of God? If we're honest, every day we wake up in this world, we have a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are telling us we belong to the kingdom of men. And they are saying, this is the values of the kingdom of men. So 
specific practical application, how can we, as the wise stewards, size up the circumstance and realize we don't live in that sphere, we live in the sphere of God. So if we don't understand that, which is grace, we won't respond in gratitude to possessions. So I would briefly encourage you, very quickly in application, to be aware to be constantly meditating on the Apostles' Creed, which is the kingdom of God. It's a different kingdom that we live in. The unjust steward sizes up and knows very well what kingdom he lives in. He knows the way that kingdom works. He's kingdom conditioned to Satan's kingdom. How do we condition ourselves every day to realize that we are in a very, very different kingdom? It's not a kingdom you're going to hear on the radio or on the TV or maybe your friends are going to hear. So how do we condition ourselves to say, hmm, can't size up a right use of possessions unless I know I belong to this kingdom? Again, the Apostles' Creed. Every line of the Apostles' Creed, you are in a different kingdom. You are in the kingdom of God the Father who gives all things for his glory and for your good. You're in the kingdom of Christ who's bought you, who owns you. He is your Lord. This is your only comfort in life and in death. You're in a kingdom where the Spirit is constantly working in your life to conform you more to the image of Christ, allowing you to see the beautiful forgiveness of sins that we hear about and that we see. This is a gracious king. We live in a very different kingdom. So if Jesus' call is how much more do sons and daughters of men in this age know their kingdom Naturally, if we're having a problem, it's because we don't understand the kingdom that we're in, the values of that kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So every day, there is a recalibration for us as Christians. Will we listen to the kingdom of men and try to fit ourselves into that world, or we fit ourselves into the kingdom to which we truly belong? So every day, we meditate on the Apostles' Creed. God the Father, what he's doing in the kingdom. God the Son, what he's doing within the kingdom. God the Spirit, what he's doing within the kingdom. What are the values of that kingdom? Righteousness, peace, joy, and forgiveness. So we suffer, I think, first with the first act, which is the unjust steward recognized rightly the situation he's in, but as sons and daughters of God, we fail to often recognize the kingdom in which we're in, which, by the way, also is a kingdom that carries with a great sense of urgency. The inbreaking of God's kingdom demands a response not like the sons and daughters of men. That has to be recognized. So this calls for Christians to say, I am in a very different kingdom, which requires a great deal of urgency, and whether you call it a crisis or not, the kingdom breaking in means you can no longer live in this manner. The kingdom demands more when we experience God's grace. So the Apostles' Creed is a daily resource for us. It's a wake-up call to recalibrate, to recognize the world in which we are placed. So that's the recognition. That's act one of the parable. But act two is then uh, an appropriate response. So if we realize that we are in the kingdom by God's great grace, so we're in grace here, the second thing is response, which is gratitude. The Heidelberg Catechism says there's uh, two ways chiefly that we can live as a good steward in the kingdom of God. One is the Lord's Prayer. And the other one is the Ten Commandments. So this is where application will become practical. Jesus is talking about the use of possessions. So I'd like you to, in your mind, pick a possession. You can call it object A of your life. It could be a toy. It could be a trinket. It could be a tool. It could be something in your house. Some objects, just call it object A. Each of us has our own. 
The beauty of the Lord's Prayer is that we can take all things to God, as Paul says, if it's received with thanksgiving and prayer, and use them in a kingdom-focused, kingdom-conditioned, long-term view of God receiving us into his eternal dwelling. So objects are objects uh, for the world, but for us they're gifts, what God gives us. So we can start in the Lord's Prayer by saying, Father, hallowed be your name, and I want your name to be hallowed by object A, and now we're going to call that gift A, whatever you've decided that is. May your name be hallowed through my use of this gift. May your kingdom, I'm so kingdom to condition that may I use this object, this gift, in a way that serves your kingdom. May this be used in ways that allow your will to be done in my life, your object, whatever it might be. I don't have the strength to do this, so give me bodily strength to use my possessions and resources in ways that honor you. Give me my daily bread. And frankly, Lord, I'm prone to fall with the way I use gift A. So help me. Forgive me. And keep me from the temptation of serving money and not you. And I want to use the gift in a way that brings you glory, fits within kingdom-focused living, and in all things is for the power of your name, the power that you give me by your spirit. So that's a proper response that the Lord's Prayer will lead us toward. Uh, it can be with any gift and possession, but Christians use possessions differently than the world, or they should. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Um, this week, practical application, I was at a thrift store, and I needed to buy some exterior lights. So I bought some lights. They were very cheap, $2 if you're thinking you were extravagant. $2 per light. I needed, I needed, needed them. They were a necessity. Uh, but I had to kingdom condition the lights because my first instinct is people are going to see how beautiful it is and say, wow, I love that. And it turns to self-worship, self-idolatry. I'll start to love the gift and not direct it back into kingdom condition living. So I would encourage you this week with the gifts that God has given you to bring them into a kingdom-conditioned focus. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. May I use this in a way that shows the urgency of the kingdom, and I want to use this, maximize it for the sake of your kingdom. Give me wisdom. Give me the ability to have a long-term view with this gift. This gift will one day pass away, but Christians are the interest of pleasing God, who is the one who receives us into eternal dwellings, verse 9. So we know that we're not like the world. We know someday kingdom condition living will be received by God and rewarded by God, receive his acclaim. So I want to make a quick comment on this. Uh, Christians, us, we, we do have a sense of interest in our future well-being, right? So we don't throw out, I'm a person. The difference with us is that we have a kingdom focus. We love God and neighbor, but self-interest is still important for Jesus. You lose your life. Don't worry, you're going, to, you're going to find it. There's a future benefit. So with the use of our possessions, we should continually think, how can this in the future receive the praise of my master in ways that are fitting? So the Lord's Prayer is a wonderful way to receive the gifts of God and condition them to a right use of urgency. I live in this kingdom. Let me use it for your kingdom. And may God give us wisdom. Two, the Heidelberg Catechism says that a proper response is that which the Ten Commandments provides for us. 
And the Ten Commandments are beautiful because they expose our sin just as Jesus is doing. You can't serve two masters. And Jesus' use of possessions really drives at the first commandment, have no other gods before me. Don't steal, but generously give and watch your heart deeply. So since Jesus is reshape, restating the Ten Commandments for us. So as we walk through the Ten Commandments, it serves to convict and to guide us along in the cheering path of you're prone to use possessions in a way that are idolatrous. So let the Ten Commandments remind and encourage and expose our deep-seated need. And as the Ten Commandments do that, we run back to the gospel, which is grace. And if we think about Christ in the Gospels, how generously he uses every gift he has for the service of Christ and for his neighbor. And he imputes that righteousness to us. So when we look at possessions with a kingdom focus, with a long-term goal of the acclaim of God, it shapes the way we live. So here are some questions to think about. How might I use Object A in ways that direct their use to the glory of God. Lord, thank you for my gifts. How might I use my possessions in ways that serve you and serve my neighbor? Two, what do I possess? If we're faithful to the teachings of Jesus, what do I possess that tends to enslave me toward idolatry? Unrighteous mammon has a tendency to corrupt a pervasive, corrupting influence. What do I own? What do I possess? What am I looking to possess that I know will well serve to enslave me and I must guard my heart from? Practically, then, how might my checkbook, my wallet, my purse reflect a kingdom-conditioned conditioned orientation to possessions? Practically. Does the way we spend or use our possessions, reflect a steward who knows this age, the kingdom of God that we live in, and acts urgently and wisely with a view to the future. Is that how we live? Do, is that reflected in our checkbook, in our purse, and in our wallet? And how might loving my neighbor with my possessions be visibly manifest? Whether that neighbor is rich or that neighbor is poor. What we're going to see next week with the fascinating parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a very practical way of kingdom-conditioned use to those who are in need. This parable is simply a how much more should we respond in light of the kingdom of God. Next week's parable will address specifically your neighbor who is in need. So I intentionally left it as object A, generally stated, Uh, for the Spirit to work in our life to cause us to be more saturated with a kingdom-oriented focus. Dear saints, respond to God's grace in the gospel. Reflect Jesus, who though he was rich for our sakes, became poor and gave everything, even of himself, because he knew the joy that laid before him, the reception of a heavenly dwelling. So may God grant us grace in our own use of possessions.